Hey, everyone. We've got a really great episode and a really great conversation on deck for you today. Our guest is Wesley Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. I'm Pierre Daly, and my co-hosts are Mike Philbrick and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management SEZC. Welcome to Raise Your Average. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Welcome, everyone. Uh, our guest today, we're very excited to bring you Wes Gray from Alpha Architect. Uh, Wes is the CEO of Alpha Architect. And uh, Wes, uh, for those of you who don't know, is also superhuman. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> um, Wes, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Pierre. Honored to be here. Very excited to uh, to get a chance to have this chat with you and and to hear about everything you're doing. Um, Wes, I, I think maybe to kick things off, it makes sense to uh, talk about the sort of the arc of your career, how you uh, where you began, where you became interested in investing, um, and and where that yeah. led you, uh, because it's been really sort of a uh, a varied and winding path for you, hasn't it? Yeah, it has been. And I'll, I guess I give you the, the nickel tour uh, going way back. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I basically grew up on a cattle ranch and I had to work all the time. And I basically asked my dad, like, this work sucks. Like, you know, can, you know, how do you not have to do this? And he's like, oh, you know, you should go get educated, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, long story short, I somehow stumbled into the whole investing thing through my grandmother when I was a kid. We used to raise like 4-H animals. And then I was like, oh, man, this is amazing. You can use money to just make money. That's a lot better than like bucking hay bells all day. Um, so that was my original incentive. Just, you know, I hated doing manual labor all the time. Um, and so I just wanted to get rich. And then I don't know if it's bad luck or good luck, but, you know, went to school. I actually started liking like intellectually just investing and in like, you know, financial economics. Um, and, and so when I was in college, I basically, instead of doing summer interns, I, I was essentially the data monkey and the programming monkey for the, uh, like the Wharton finance department. And I actually liked it. And they said, Hey, you know, you should do a PhD because this is what you do all day is just do research and like, think about stuff and get paid. I was like, well, that sounds awesome. Um, and so, so right after undergrad, I basically went into you know PhD program, and then spent a few years there. Uh, and then I also like Mike and Rodrigo know like I like to do crazy stuff sometimes. So I I just need to take a break from finance. So I went to the to the service, um, with like the military service to be clear. And you know was there for four years. Came back, uh, wrapped up my uh, PhD and then went out to initially was basically a professor job, but simultaneously, I'm sure we'll get into it. I got, you know, basically cold call by a billionaire who said, Hey, I like your work. Uh, you want to work with us too? Um, and then everything kind of went from there. And, and then eventually, you know, I moved into full-time alpha architect and, and what we do today, which is essentially our mission is empower investors for education. So, and there's a lot of details in between there, but that that's the so that's the one minute. So what version. was it that got you the uh, the cold call from the billionaire? 
Um, so we had always, well, I guess me back in the day, but I used to have like a blog, um, like before blogging became a thing, it was like an old blog spot. I don't know if you guys remember, yeah. uh, like the initial platforms. Uh, but I, I, so my whole idea was I used to read academic papers all the time, which I still do, but like, I always need like a, a disciplining mechanism because one thing to just go read a paper, but if you force yourself to like do something with it, it means you actually got to like internalize it a little bit. So, so the original intent of the blog was not actually to have people read it, but it was more of a, a forcing mechanism where, where if I read a paper and then I had to like do some sort of summary and try to regurgitate out what it meant to me, that means I probably had to know something about it. Um, and then the concept was like, maybe there's like five geeks in the world that would read this blog. Um, turns out one of the geeks was really rich. Uh, so, the, so that's literally how it happened. Um, this, this guy, they just came out of 2008 and they were the biggest, you know, uh, uh, hedge fund seeder in the world for 30 years. And they lived through the 08 crisis and they're like, wow. Um, we should probably take control of our money and stop paying these people these huge fees and not having any positive ability to get our money when we actually need it. We're going to get rid of all of them. So literally their, their mission was fire all the hedge fund managers, take internal control. Let's, let's manage taxes, manage fees. And, oh, great. We don't also trust anyone on Wall Street. Here's this maniac Marine guy that I like his blog. He seems pretty you know, trustworthy, or at least he doesn't know what he's actually doing. Uh, let's just call him up. Uh, and that's basically what happened in old days. You think, Oh, this is so niche who would ever care. But because like, you know, the internet has made your audience, not like, you know, a few people, but you know, 8 billion. I mean, even if you get one basis point of one basis point of one basis point, you could have an audience of a million that's, that's people now good. in yeah. the most weird thing you ever thought of. So uh, I think just dumb luck, just, you know, being in the blog world and having access to, um, you know, anyone who wants to read the internet, that, that's just how it happened. So good luck and good time. So you finished, you finished at UPenn and then what made you decide, I mean, aside from a sabbatical, but what made you mm -hmm. decide that you wanted to go to, uh, and join the Marine Corps? Um, so I had always wanted to do the service, uh, like my whole life, but it, I just kept having opportunity cost problems. So, so originally, you know, I, I went and got into Penn. Uh, I was like, well, I should probably go to college and I'll delay that to when I graduate. And then when I graduated from Penn, I got, you know, when you go to these PhD programs, especially on my deal, they were paying me what I thought was a lot of money to go to school. And I was like, wow, that's an amazing deal. You're going to pay me to go to your school to get a that's PhD? Sign me up. Um, so so I, then I was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll put on the service thing. And then, you know, then after doing a few years in those PhD programs, it's just, you know, total beatdown. Um, and I was thinking, you know what, like I'm 24. I, if, if I graduate with a PhD from University of Chicago, my opportunity costs thing, like my excuse is only going to be even <laughs> higher like i gotta either i gotta either shit or get off the pot uh pardon the french um so so that was basically it's just the timing of that was it was now or never basically um so that, that's why i did it at that that particular time so it was it was hazing harder in the marines or in chicago you know, I actually think Chicago, uh, <laughs> like I'm, I'm real good at, at dealing with physical pain for some reason. Like my mom's like that too. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I think I have a, maybe a genetic 
benefit there. Um, but mental pain is, you know, cause you got to actually sit there. Like I, I thought it was pretty bad. Like physical pain is pretty simple to deal with, but the mental pain of like having to learn and rewire all your neurons. I thought that was much more challenging for me personally, but everyone's a little bit different. So, um, you, uh, you started work, you started, uh, advising the, uh, billionaire family office. And, yeah. and then that eventually led to you founding, uh, several companies and, and then Alpha Architect. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the way it worked is that's when we started and, and the initial deal was like, I, I was like, Oh, this was great. I finally met some really rich person. Now I finally got someone who can seed our business. Cause as there, as you guys all know, the problem with asset management is you, you need a track record, you need capital to get capital. So unless your uncle's like got a hundred million dollars, it's hard for normal people that don't have access to a lot of money to ever start asset management business. But here was my chance, like, you know, bajillionaire here and, and, and we're friendly, we're, we're hitting it off. I could do it. But, but the problem was they were actively getting out of the seed business. So, so my ask was, Hey, you're about to like, and, and the dad was the one who actually controlled everything. I, I dealt with the, the son. Um, but essentially he's like, listen, man, uh, my dad has just gave me the mandate to get rid of all seed deals and you want a seed deal. <laughs> that ain't going to work. So how about we do this? You help me out. Give me two years. Uh, you know, we'll just, you're basically going to be my full-time consultant, build out the family office, give us the tools, give us the training. And then if you guys do a really good job, uh, i tell you what, I'll, I'll convince my dad to do a seed deal. So that's basically what happened, right? 2010, we started. 2012 is when we got our initial 20 mil seed and then it went to 50. But it, it was basically a two-year kind of prove yourself out and, and let's build a relationship. We'll pitch my dad if he's cool with like making an exception to his old rule of, Hey, we're getting out of seating business, you know, we'll get, we'll get back in the chips. And then, so that's, that's, that really got us cooking. Um, and then just through this blog and, and now everyone does this, but I don't know, just random rich people would, their geeks would reach out and say, Hey, really like what you guys are doing. Sounds interesting. How do I invest with you? Um, and so we did really did the SMAs and we kept attracting you know, rich people that essentially were not uh, very into paying taxes. And so I used to do all kinds of like tax loss harvesting and building algorithms to, to figure out how to optimize. And then it's a long story, but we, we ran into the tax structuring of the ETF vehicle, which is a, it's a little bit different and more um, generous down here in the States versus what you can do up there in Canada. But, but essentially it's a deferral mechanism and we look at that, we're like, oh my God, we do active factors, like things that turn over a decent amount. And we, all of our clients hate taxes. This ETF thing looks like a no brainer in the wave of the future. And we'll got lucky after the fact it was, but that's, so that, that's where our business transitioned there around 2013. One of our clients gave us uh, like a million dollars of working capital. And we decided to get in like transition and get into the ETF business basically. And then we started that and pretty much the worst timing for value, uh, top ticked it, but, uh, <laughs> the, the end of 2014, we launched a, a value product after having like an amazing run the, the three years prior. And then we decided to go public in the world and then it just, you know, went bad, uh, ever since then. So, you know, but it was good. We got into it's ETFs coming though. It's coming. Clearly, it's coming. Uh, it's coming, man. I'm way less down. 
Yeah, I don't make comments on when when values come, and especially when everyone says it's coming. I back. saw a big so. cross today between growth and value. Oh, it's no. looking good wow. since, since the bottom. Oh, yeah, no, it's it's over. looking good. It's, it's looking good, over. but so we got Nasdaq ten years down, to make Nasdaq up. Nasdaq down almost two percent today. Value shooting yeah. up. I think this is it, man. So Wes, <laughs> let's yeah. talk so about Wes. Yeah, well, second, well, Wes. Let's before talk about, we jump yeah. into the value, um, actually, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you you start Alpha Architect. What were the what were yeah. some of the driving so value is obviously one of the driving factors. How did you sort of take all that yeah. research, all that brain damage you'd done through your schooling yeah. and decide on, hey, yeah. here are the factors that I think are, you know, the ones that we should pursue? How am I yeah. gonna combine them? How did you come to that calculus? So yes, so originally in our life cycle as a firm, we we're just pure research and we studied everything, right? We have a folder on every thing you could ever think about in financial markets because that's all we did we weren't in asset management business we were just pure research business and our job was to see everything that got flung at the family office from the street you know from goldman prop desk or whoever and just take it like deconstruct it and say hey is this something that's actually adds value after fees after taxes after brain damage um, so, so that was our original business, but then we got into asset management with the seed and we started off with systematic value. Cause I happened to have a book about it. That's what I'd always done my whole life. I was just value person. Like it was the only thing I believed in. That was my religion. So that's what we did because that's what I had the most faith and confidence in. Um, and we started, decided to focus there. And then our problem though, is, is we were still research minded people. So all we wanted to do is more research on like different things. So we had like prop strategies going on. We had like 50 strategies in our firm. Uh, Excuse me, I got a call there. Uh, (laughs) And and so we had too many things going on, but then we realized like, wait a second, in asset management business, you actually need to have assets and you got to actually focus because no one's going to believe you when you say, yeah, I understand all this shit because I've been studying it for my whole life. They're going to be like, no way, you can't know everything about everything. And even though we, we, we thought we probably did at some level, we understood that, hey, you need to focus. You need to actually have a business. Like you got to stop doing all this fun stuff and actually focus. Um, and so that, that's what we did. And then our whole thing was uh, we wanted to provide like a lot of people provide like like you guys do like diversification, which is great. I think that's awesome. But our, our main issue was like, hey, I want to get the efficient frontier to expand up and to the left, i.e. I really care about expected returns because expected returns do not grow on trees for a vast majority of people that can't use leverage or have issues with leverage. And so how do I gain organic leverage through investment vehicles? Well, there's these things called factors. And guess what? If you do concentrated factors, you get even more of embedded leverage. So if you want to figure out how to gain access to high expected returns and sharp ratio is not necessarily your goal, because for a reason like leverage is something you're just it's not really part of your your shtick. Um, that's what we wanted to do. And and I just always like value. Uh, and then, as you guys know, like eventually we we got de brainwashed and thought, oh, this momentum stuff's uh, pretty cool. Uh, and then we got further de brainwashed, and I thought, oh, this trend following stuff is also pretty cool. Mainly because our that original investor was a huge trend follower, and I told him he was full of it for many years. And but eventually, obviously, I got convinced. Um, and, and you guys do great research on that, and 
I, I'm, I'm obviously a, a buyer of it now, but it took me about 10 years because uh, I, I am mm-hmm. a tried and true uh, Eugene Fama uh, student. So, so I, the EMH was, was buried heavy into my brain for, uh, for a long part of my life. Yeah, man, when you're part of a cult, it's really tough to get out of it. Eugene it is very especially. tough. Yeah, I, I was I was so in on that cult. I'm so still in on that cult. Let's but. let's try to help other people get out of a certain cult, which I think yeah. is the cult of of large safety in in the factor space from these these very big conglomerates, right? The Black Rocks and the like. These these are pe- these are organizations that offer factor tilts in their portfolio. Um, yeah. Now, when somebody looks at factor investing. What's the major difference that you would say exists between these multi-billion dollar organizations giving you factor tilts, quote unquote, and what you guys mm-hmm. have decided to focus on and put together in your research and your, in your ETFs? Yeah. So, um, well, and, and you guys know this obviously being a boutique, but, but generally what happens in the asset management industry is once you have too much money, you have to basically be the market for all intents and purposes, right? You have too much capital. There's no way to take, there's no way to take an infinite amount of capital and be something that's not the market because you are the market. And so when, when you're a firm like BlackRock or Vanguard or anyone like this, where your whole business model is about how do I leverage my scale? Well, in order to leverage my scale, I need to build products that can scale, right? Because that's the way you would do it. And so to the extent you want to build a scalable product, it's very important that it has tons of capacity. And a lot of times you're kind of perfectly positioned to be able to deliver like market returns uh, at the lowest cost possible. So you're going to build portfolios that are essentially market portfolios that either market cap weight or own like thousands of securities in a particular market to tr- try, try to deliver that exposure cheaply and knowing full well you have the capacity to like pour 50, $100 billion in it, right? And, and so you can also do that in the context where like you're talking about like a factor tilt where, hey, we're going to add this factor thing, but let's just add a little bit of factor juice on it because we still need to have tons of capacity. We still need to be able to leverage our scale to make this a profitable uh, enterprise or business for our enterprise. And then there's the full other spectrum, which is what we are and, and what you know Mike and Rodrigo are and a lot of people. That's the boutique world. Well, the boutique world as a, is kind of a double-edged sword. Your benefit is you have no assets. That's also the, the bad side because if you had a lot of assets, you'd own a private island, right? But hey, you got to start somewhere. So when, when you're a boutique, you have to be different. And you also have the benefit and the ability to be different. So you can build portfolios without constraints to the extent that you say, hey, I need to build this day one so it has $50 billion capacity. I can wake up and say, I'm going to build a portfolio that might have a billion dollar capacity, and I'm totally cool with that, right? And so, so that's what we've chosen. We've chose, chosen the route of the boutique. And so our portfolios are much more focused and concentrated in like the pure factor exposure, knowing full well that, yeah, if you gave me $100 billion, I'd have to go do what iShares and Vanguard do too. But unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I don't have $50 billion, so, so I got to be different and actually try to add value and, and add uniqueness. Um, and, and that's just the nature of uh, being a boutique versus a, a scale operator. 
So from a practical perspective, how many positions does a large factor tilted ETF have versus the amount of positions that you guys hold in your portfolios? Yeah. So, so perfect example is, is they may have like 500 to a thousand securities where they own them all, but they just kind of tilt in one way or the other where, where our portfolios are, are as concentrated basically as we can be and still be in line with like the regulators and 40 act. And we usually hold around 40 securities. Um, and again, it's yeah. obviously it's going to be very different, but the concept is it's going to be very focused in what we're actually trying to achieve versus just doing little tilts away from, you know, the thousand stocks plus or minus a few basis points. I think there's, there is use cases for that. Um, some, you know, you have a tracking error issue for some clients as well. So, yeah. you know, a thoughtful advisor yeah. is going to be thinking about, you know, is this client able to handle the tracking error that comes from the true, yes. um, you know, let's call it the value factor in this case uh, yeah. versus, no, just having a smidgen of, of value in there. Yep. But I think uh, I think the, yeah. the the advisor misses the point on the fact that they could go by, you know, the underlying index for the one basis point, and sprinkle yeah. in you know a ten or fifteen percent uh, position of true sort of deep value through one of Wes's portfolios as an example, and be you know far far further ahead on a gross fee basis, and you know I think that. You know, th th that's something that has to be considered. Now, some people would not be able to take the tracking error and the line item risk, of course. Um, yeah. But maybe you can comment on that a little bit, Wes. Yeah, yeah. So that's, um, well, as you, as you guys know, like like there's there's doing things rational and then there's just dealing with reality <laughs> a lot of the time. So, so yeah, the, the hyper-rational advisor who's trying to maximize the value proposition for their clients on an after-fee, after-tax, risk-adjusted basis, um, in this theoretical world, they would do what you say. They, they'd say, wow, there's this, you know, this closet index fund that's basically 95% Vanguard 5% actually like doing something factor-based and they charge me 50 basis points. Um, I can basically replicate that by going 90% the Vanguard fund and 10% in some concentrated fund and the all-in cost might be five basis points. So you're going to get, you basically finance your engineer to the same endpoint, but like way more efficiently, uh, way more transparently because you can actually see what each item is doing. You can rebalance but those as, as you guys too. know, like, yeah, like the line item risk, it's super weird, right? Because everything you learn in portfolio theory is you're not supposed to think in line items. You're supposed to think in a portfolio so you can gain the benefits right. of like non-correlated assets and things yin and while other things yanging. Um, that's like literally what the whole financial theory is based on. And yet the whole industry is based on a reporting uh, set up where, where what do you do every quarter? You go show to your client the, the quarterly statement. It has like every line. Like this strategy, benchmark, this strategy, benchmark. And of course, the client, like, let's say you have, you bought like an insurance asset. They're like, why does this thing always go down 1% a month? They're like, this is stupid. Why do we own it? Because it's in the line item. And of course, when the world blows up and it goes up 10,000%, they're like, why don't we have all our money in that thing? You know, so, so I don't know why our industry has structured people to basically behavioral, behaviorally be flawed and not actually be able to use actual portfolio theory, but it just is what it is. Um, I know you guys deal with that a lot. With any, Anytime you do anything alty or different and you, you have a line item and you're trying to pitch it like, hey, you add this in a portfolio and it adds a ton of value, you know, people just don't care when it's losing money. 
<laughs> basically. So, um, yeah, I don't know how to solve that. <laughs> well, it's it's the uh, it's the it's the duty of the fiduciary to continue to work their clients to to that end, I guess, in in order to to do yeah, that. That's right. And really good advisors we see do that, right? They they, they lower the reporting cycle. We're not going to look at your portfolio every day, every month, every quarter. We're going to do it once a year. And then they keep them very focused on goals. Like, what is your goals? Not, you know, what do you think about the CNBC commentator, which is very good. That just keeps people focused on the end state. And then they also do their best to the extent they can within like the regulatory regime to just show the high level portfolio performance and not go into the weeds because that actually protects the client from doing stupid decisions and allows the advisor to actually be smart about, you know, how they think about adding different products and what have you. And so how do you, how do you think about, um, putting these factors together as you build portfolios at uh, alpha architect, like you've got value, you've got momentum. How have you kind of thoughtfully integrated those two approaches to have sort of a gestalt? Yeah. So, um, so, so we always say like, hey, we do value and we do momentum, but obviously we use all factors. I just view the world through the lens of there's like top tier expect to return driving factors. And then there's kind of like fine tuning factors that work on a quote unquote risk adjusted basis. Right. So, so the primary goal is how do I gain organic leverage to high expected returns? Well, I know I got to buy cheap stocks, i.e. the value factor. And of course, within our value factor strategy, you know, a big component of that is once you've found cheap stocks, let's do equal weight construction. Let's focus very heavily on quality. So we're, we're including indirectly like size and quality and low vol, everything that everyone likes. But we just like to emphasize like value is really at the core of, of what we're doing. These other things are just kind of fine tuning it to, to help us try to extract the biz, biggest expected return out of that value factor. Um, similarly, in momentum, like momentum is obviously, it's high level, it's just pure momentum, right? But then as, as you get down to the algorithm, we have elements of, of like, we're well, looking at like, you know, what what is the quality of this momentum? Also like at the margin, like instead of owning like the mega cap, mega cap trillion dollar companies, if we can get more diversified exposure across things that aren't just mega caps, i.e. some of the size component, um, that also might be interesting. So we always we always lead with like, hey, we do value, we do momentum, because that's the simplest narrative to get people going down the right path to earn higher expected returns. But obviously within those constructs, we're incorporating all the factors that everyone knows and loves. It's just they're less of an um, emphasis because we feel they're less important to the goal of high expected returns with, without leverage, basically. Wes, what's the- and, and one of the reasons that you put together value with uh, momentum uh, is they, they're highly complementary at the end of the day, right? Yes. They tend to yeah. Be, out of, out of all the, you got it. And it, and it's, and it go, for me, it goes beyond geek. It's just intuitively value is like a fundamental based philosophy that that's one religion and then the other religion is like, okay, we don't care about fundamentals. We care about technicals and like sentiment. And that's the momentum trend religion. And and I just feel like these two religions hate each other. And, and so they're just naturally, I don't have to see a back test 
And I know, like, I value momentum strategies throughout the history of the world from now, in the past, and for the next thousand years, they're probably going to always be the yin and yang. So I like their structural kind of, you know, pooling benefits. What's- yeah, and I think this is an important point. That it's so silly, but it's so important to clear up. Whenever I mention something like that to an individual investor, they say, well, hold on a second, you're, you're buying something when the other one's losing it and, and the other one's losing it when you're, when, when you're making money on the other one. Don't you make a zero rate of return, right? And I think the key thing here is to think about it from, we like to talk about in Canada, that there are really no ski companies, right? And there are no bike companies. There's a store called yeah. Skis and Bikes, right? Because yeah. it's not that they're highly complementary to each other, but independently, they're going to make, they're going to have positive cash flow at the end of the year. They're going to make money. Yeah. The ski company is going to make money in the winter. Bike company is going to make money in the summer. When you put them together, your cash flow smooth out. Yeah. You get an upward slope. Yeah, that, that, so the, that's the, the right. The key thing um, is we expect a, a positive expected rate of return from both of these. Yes. And yet they are that, that is a great generally speaking, at different times. That's right. You never, well, actually, it, the sad thing is if, if you really get deep geek, as you guys know, sometimes you do want to include negative expect return strategies. They have particular, sure. you know, benefits to them. But but in general, to the normal person and what most people should focus on is anything you do in investing, if you're trying to earn money, obviously you, you want to make sure at the outset as a standalone, they have high positive expected returns for sure. <laughs> Uh, so independently, they're both pretty good. But it, but if they kind of balance each other out on, on the risk component, you might get a diversification benefit is the argument. But that's <laughs> a great Can I point. just ask one more yeah. one more question that often comes sure. up? Is, what do you, why, why are you not using growth? I, I thought that was a style and growth and value are really complementary and whatnot. What's this momentum stuff? Why not focus on uh, it? Honestly, it's face. all semantics. Um, you know, I just came out of academic world where, where momentum, like you always want to define what you're talking about. So momentum in the context of academic research is all about price action. Now, when you go and growth is all about being the opposite of value, like it's expensive stocks. So in academic literature, Value is cheapest stocks on the P.E. ratio, right? Growth is definitionally, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, definitionally it's the most expensive stocks in the market. And then momentum definitionally is you're buying the, the best winners based on price action. So, so that's just, we call it momentum because that's what we actually focus on is the academic version of momentum means price action positively. Now, when you go, when you mention growth to me, where I have my academic brain on, I'm like, well, that's stupid. Why do you want to own expensive stuff? <laughs> but, but, but if you say, oh, well, you mentioned growth to me, and you say, oh, but a big component of my growth algorithm is I'm focused on positive price action. I'm, I'm focused on like operational fundamental momentum. I'll be like, okay, we're actually talking about the same thing. So it's really just one of those things where, depending on who you talk to, it's very important to just describe what are we actually talking about here? Are we academic lens, practitioner lens? Just tell me what your definition of growth is, and then we can communicate effectively. Um, so I have no problem with growth it, to the extent it's defined as like positive price action, positive like fundamental action, and some other things that that seem to make sense and, and capture kind of animal spirits and uh, you know, greed, basically. Wes, what's the, uh, what is the biggest objection that you face 
What's, what's one of the, like, what, is there one or two big ones that, that you deal with on a regular basis? Uh, well, one or two, there's probably 5,000 at this point, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, I mean, the biggest thing on, um, there's just different levels to the game, right? So the, the first level is, wait, you don't use people like you're not stock picking. How do you know what's going on? Like, like, how do you sure that like, why is this computer got any capability to do this? Right. So, so there's one level of like the initial intro where, where if someone just does not have any familiarity with quant or like using computers to pick stocks, this is totally mind blowing that, that we don't use human insight after the fact and what the algorithm tells us to actually like change it. Like we actually just do what the algorithm says. Right. So, so that's one level. Um, and then, then the next level is once you get into people who are doing factors, um, and they're like, okay, got it. I, I understand like all the quant stuff and all the factor stuff. I'm, I'm a buyer of the concept of systematic versus human interference in the, in the process. Now let's argue over like the exact, uh, details of your ingredients. Like, well, you guys use this. Well, I like that. You know, what about this thing? Like I read this paper that, that told me this other thing. So there's always debates on that and who the heck knows what the right answer is. Um, but then the other one is, it's not really uh, a complaint. It's just, it's an is, is, is we obviously can construct our portfolios to try to maximize expected return where, where we're doing concentrated factors, which are mechanically, and we're telling people up front, this is going to capture a lot of fundamental risk and it's going to put you in the position of eating a lot of career risk. Like, i.e., like, look at the five-year relative performance chart. Like, it's happened 10 times where you got fired. This is why this doesn't get arbitraged. You should, you want to do this. And, and so a lot of people just complain about that. And they're like, well, why don't we just do this other thing? Well, I'm like, well, then just go buy the Vanguard fund. Uh, that That's cool. Yeah. Like, <laughs> So it's not really a complaint. It's just a lot of people, because we're just so transparent about what we do and why, they walk themselves into the corner of like, well, that makes sense. But then they walk themselves back out because it's fundamentally, it's just not appropriate for their situation. And that's fine. We, we don't, we don't sell to everybody. Like we know we're a boutique. Your clients are amazing. I've met them at the March for the Fallen. <laughs> They're just yeah. fantastic. Yeah. We right? got yeah, uh, they, well they screened. Like, uh, Race the suck. And I'm having yeah, yeah. my portfolios Let's, for 10 years. Like, you really found Yeah. It. Might not um, be long enough. Well, 10 you, years? I mean, you might guys, not be long enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you guys know, I mean, the, like, the thing is, when you've been in this business for so long, you, you quickly realize the, the, the actual process of what you're doing matters a little bit. Obviously, like, you don't want to do stupid things. But in the end, if you just have a process, that's great. You've passed the 99% rule. But then the other 1%, which is the most important, is... Can you stick to this damn thing and the behavioral components like that? That's yeah. everything like any all processes are good if you stick to them. If you switch every process every day, you're just a day trader that has a lot of frictional costs, pays a lot of fees and just you're crazy. Um, so I don't really I don't get in deep arguments anymore with people over like the nuance of process like it's fun. But my whole focus now is on how do I get behavior Correct, because that'll solve way bigger problems than whether my book value is bigger than your cash flow value or something. You know, it's just that doesn't matter um, to me, at least. It matters, but it's not that's a geek conversation. It's not a client outcome. Conversation. I, think, I think it's also so. really important for 
investors to understand that if you are harnessing a factor and you have really, really focused down on that factor like uh, like Alpha Architect does and like West does, that the manifestation of that factor is going to be amplified by the concentration. And thus, when you get challenging times of performance, in fact, your, your true value manager is going to have likely a larger drawdown because they have a more yeah. pure exposure to this thing, which provides for an, an amazing opportunity for rebalancing. So rebalancing that mar- yeah. market cap weighted, you know, we come back to that 90-10 discussion earlier about how you might think about, hey, this is how I'm going to construct the portfolio. You'll pay probably all the fees by simply rebalancing back between your 90% market cap, 10% value, a deep value yeah. ETF. You, and you have that opportunity to do so if you can handle sort of the line item risk and the behavioral risk. There's a huge opportunity yes. there. Yeah, I, I mean that. Point, right? Yeah, yeah. Rebalance ahead, bonus, yeah. like the diversification opportunities. I mean, all that is. But but the problem is, is all that stuff is gets into deep geek territory, right. and it, it gets quickly off the reservation of like warm and fuzzy narrative, um, which is usually what most people like to focus in that lane. And most advisors and intermediaries like a lot better to tell a story than actually do the right thing. Because it's more profitable. Yeah. For well, well, this, we're trying to right. change that here. Yeah. This is raise your yeah. average is the name of this. So this is why we're yeah, we're, I we're love digging it. in and um, saying this is the way. Yeah, we're, we're going to go with the robot brain here. We're going to yeah. yeah. It's, go ahead. This is the way. Just like Mandalorian, <laughs> yeah, yes, get, you know, of course. like this is the way. Like I just the, tweeted that Mandalorian, out. <laughs> you should have all. I tweeted that out about value today. This is the way. Yeah, they should watch that and be like, "You're a Mandalorian, man." This is the way, like we got a process, everyone's going to make fun of it. Like they say, oh, well, you wear your mask funny or why don't you take it (laughs) off? Like, no, this is the way, like stick to the process, maintain discipline. And it doesn't really matter what the process is or what the, like the discipline matters, the process doesn't just stick to it. This is the way. And you will be a better investor. You will raise your average, uh, but that's hard. It, it is, but it's, 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 well, it's absolutely yeah, and, and critical to, wanna, to understand. Just, I want to make this one point just because mm-hmm. you're going to go through a, 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 an appraisal process in your portfolio and you're going to look at these line items and you're going to say, oh, look at this value manager that's underperforming the value index during this time. And your conclusion yeah. should be if that process is or process is on point. And I generally have the right factors and direction that I actually want to own that pure value player that has actually had worse performance than even the value benchmarking index. If the process is pure, that's where my higher expected return will be. Yet it's the exact opposite that occurs over and over again. And if we, you know, look at um, what's that one... um, murder on the Orient Express piece where they looked at institutionally managers that were replaced and just going forward, the manager that was fired uh, did better than the manager that was hired. And and these are the mistakes that occur regularly. They're, you know, um, non-optimizers. They're not profit seeking either because they don't know or, you know, they're, they're succumbing to the behavioral issues. But in either case, there's excess return there. Yeah. 
Can I make, yeah, can I, I make uh, one point? Yeah, go for it, and I want you to help me out, Wes. Because sure. I think this is a practical takeaway for advisors, right? So right now you yeah. can get one of those big, uh, let's say, value-tilted uh, uh, ETFs that are 50 basis points, right? But in reality, yeah. when you actually, and Wes has a, if you go to his website, there is an analyzing tool that allows you to tell you how much of that strategy is actually just plain beta and how much it is actually factor. And and I'm going to just make up numbers that are roughly accurate. But yeah. When you buy these, you're, you're getting, let's say, let's say we're getting 90% just the market and you're getting 10% the value factor and you're being charged 50 basis points. Okay. Now you like that profile because it's going to be more like the market. It's not going to be as painful, but you can replicate that by buying 90% of the Vanguard ETF for one basis point or whatever it is in Canada and then buying something like Wes's for 50, 60 basis points. Right. And you end up paying the 90 the 90 percent in one basis point the 10 percent in 60 basis points you end up paying 16 basis points all in to get the exact same profile you had with buying that big etf you just have to look through the titles you have to look through the narrative and understand what you're buying right you can you can get much closer to it but you know again the issue is that you've gone from one commingled line item for you know blackrock value etf to two line items, one which is the S&P or the other one which is a highly variable, has a lot more variance and has a lot more tracking error. So that line item still exists. It should be smaller though, if you if you want to be like the like you, you yeah. were before. And so I think that's a, a clear takeaway, like an actionable step where you can save your clients money and get the same exposure if you want to. Yeah. Yeah, we call and that... Did I, uh, I kind of get that? What's your what's Yeah, your, yeah, uh, that's... Actually, so smart beta down here, they call that core satellite, but up there, uh, the smart beta, they call that beta and blend. Um, so, so you just take your beta and then you just, you go with the blend and you use like super concentrated, unique kind of alternative exposures to, to give you collectively like a much cheaper profile, but you're the process wise, you're, you're achieving the same goal just for usually a third the cost. And as you, as you guys know, being in the Canadian market down here, it's a lot more competitive in the States where, where advisors have got, gotten this message already. But when you're in Canada, like the opportunity to do the beta and blend or like, you know, be a little bit smarter about how you engineer your portfolio is epic. Because I would say 90% of portfolios you see up there are like, holy cow, um, you, you, ever, uh, you ever thought about this at all? Um, whereas down here, you still run into that every so often, but it's much rarer occasion that, that you see a, a portfolio where it's obvious this could be improved w without thinking too hard. Um, and that, I think that's just probably the nature of Canadian market. It's just, it's a little bit different uh, and the competitive pressures are, are also a little bit unique versus down yeah, here. How do you, so. how do you think about the, the sector composition, uh, Wes, as you're, as you're building these out, do you have some guardrails on that? How, how do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah. So we have, um, so, so that this is also where, like I always say in quant, there's kind of like an art versus science because you can only backtest so many things to blow your brains out. Um, so on, on the sector component, the, the key thing with sectors is, unfortunately, unless you're running long short, like when you're long only factor investing, which is what we do, the, um, the, the value, a lot of these factor premiums end up being correlated with sectors in the short run. And the problem is, like, for example, if you want to do the value premium, um, whoop, 
Sorry, guys. So, so if you're trying to do the value premium, and let, let's just take the extreme example of like 99, right? When if you do a sector neutral long only value fund, um, and unfortunately you got to own, let's say, 50% of your book in tech. Well, when the cheapest tech firm is like 200 times earnings, that's not capturing the value premium, right? Value premium, at least as I view it through the academic lens and I think why it works, it's the fear trade. You're buying dirtball, nasty, ugly firms that no one likes. They don't think, they think they're dead. And so you pay low cost, you get a high earnings yield. And on average, they, you know, it's always bet, a little bit better than expected and they make some extra money, right? So, so that's the background. And so, but there's a trade-off. You also may not want, okay, energy is really cheap. Let's do 100% energy because you do have like a massive idiosyncratic bet, obviously, in energy. Even though, yes, it's true. That's where all the one PE stocks are. Uh, <laughs> you probably should do that. So, so there's like this trade-off where we want to maximize expected returns, and unfortunately, we got to do crazy stuff, right? We can't be so benchmark hugging that we're forced to not capture the premium because our goal is not sharp ratio. Our goal is expected returns organically, right? And, and so we, we've got to be able to bet sectors, but we put basically a 20% break on all of them. So, so you can never get too crazy, right? So we got to have some baseline but we also got to allow ourselves, if that's where value or momentum or whatever resides, you know, we unfortunately got to live there. And the reason I, I mentioned at the outset that's really important for long only is if you're long short, that's a different ballgame. Because if you're long short, I can go long a sector, but now I can easily short that, that beta out, that short beta. So it's a little bit easier to kind of fine tune how you're trying to like extract the factor. But when you're long only, like you got limited tools. Um, and, and so it just is what it is. Like there's, you know, different strokes for different folks. And so you guys have, have uh, go ahead, Pierre. Yeah. No, that's okay. I just wanted to ask Wes, when you, like, how do you approach the, uh, the question of macro in terms of uh, your strategies? Mm -hmm. um, so macro is one of those things where, you know, I love talking about macro and I've read tons of papers on it. We used to actually run like one of our original research products was or for the family was, hey, how do we use all this macro data, like almost like a big data approach? This was like in 2010 to build predictive models for expected returns. And so and we did that. Like I wasted so much time in my life building out like the most crazy, sophisticated timing models, trying to predict expected returns using a lot of macro data. Um, and then I, I kept coming back to this damn trend falling thing, probably because I was reading too many of Philbrick's blogs or something. But the issue is I, I have a complex with simplicity. Um, and, and we kept finding, I was like, wait a second, I got this like insane model with like 100 data items. And wow, this stupid trend falling thing basically does the same thing, but with way less dials. And I actually have more confidence in like kind of the fundamental reason of why it works. And so we end up scrapping all that. And, and so I think macro is super interesting. Love to talk about it. But both from like a qualitative perspective and a quantitative perspective, I have never been convinced that it's that great at timing or actually influencing your investment decisions. Save trend. Unfortunately, like trend is the only thing where I believe like. I believe that works. 
But I also believe just like value, just like momentum, being a trend follower sucks <laughs> from a career risk standpoint, because Absolutely. you got to not only be very different, you might got to be in cash while everyone's riding the S&P looking like a genius. And so the career risk element of trend, while empirically, obviously, it makes all the sense in the world to me, talk about a painful investment, you know, life. It's it's the most unbearable. It's way worse. I remember when when you guys were triggering that sell in March. I remember how it was like, oh, my God, it's coming. This is you guys are on Twitter, right? We're going to have to start doing something about this. Well, we hit it. And when you hit it, I was like, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, we that is a that's a tough gig. It was great. You guys got out of the way protected, right? And of course, then yeah. there's a rebound from the bottom. That, uh, that and also, then you get uh, your you get yeah. smoked out exactly. Yeah. So I, I think trend falling is the best factor in some sense, but also the worst in some sense. So, but yeah. you know, put it all no together, pain, it's, no it's, it's it's painful magic. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. It's like the other point I wanted to to touch upon is something something you said early in the conversation which is yeah. the idea of, you know, we wanted to create something that was uh, trying to move the efficient frontier to the top left without yeah. the issue of having to deal with leverage or people who couldn't do leverage or just didn't want to do leverage. And so, yeah. you know, this is an interesting discussion because what you have created is, in a way, implicit leverage due to your concentration. Okay, so, so yeah. there's... I'll, I'll give some numbers I was just kind of looking up so, and then you can explain what, what the basis behind all of this is, right? But you, you can see mm -hmm. the, from the recovery from March to, let's say, last week, uh, S&P 500 was up 70, 80%. I think the NASDAQ was up a bit higher and your yeah. momentum was up 200% from the bottom to the top, right? Like that's yeah. the leverage that we're talking about without having to use any leverage. Your value was also higher than uh, yeah. any one of the S&P or the NASDAQ, right? So what's happening yeah. there? What is That means both variance on the upside and the downside, but why don't you talk yeah. a little bit about that implicit leverage concept? Sure. So, um, yeah, so for example, momentum is probably the easiest to understand, right? So when you do a momentum portfolio, just generically, it just it's in the name, right? This thing is going to be volatile. It's momentum. So when the market's working, you're working. When the market's not working, you're not working. And then when you take momentum and you just concentrate that up to buying the top 50, like our momentum strategy, for example, has a beta of 1.3, i.e. Yep. just on average, when the market's up 1%, this thing's up 1.3%. And if it's down 1%, you're, you know, you're down 1.3%. But, but you only put a dollar in to buy 1.3 beta, right? So, so you, you get like this, you, the, the same dollar buys you amped exposure to the market. Whereas if you wanted to replicate that by just without taking the momentum component out of it, if you just wanted to buy the S&P to get the same exposure, you'd have to go borrow, you know, 30 cents on leverage to get a 1.3 beta. So, so these concentrated focused uh, products, they're going to give you amped exposure a lot of times to like market beta and obviously these factors we're talking about. Um, and of course, the downside of that is they also come with a lot of extra volatility. And a lot of that volatility is just volatility that's going to be there 
But a lot of that volatility is arguably idiosyncratic or kind of unrelated to all your other stuff. So that's why I mentioned that our products are made to move that efficient frontier up and to the left. Because if you look at them standalone, you're like, holy cow. Yeah, this has high returns. But dude, the standard deviation is like mind-blowing. Like I'm going to die. Um and so that's why I say, well, you don't own this product for 100% of your money, man. You pull this in your portfolio, and because it has high expected return organically, it's going to move you up on your frontier. And But because a lot of that volatility it is truly randomness, like presumably if you have a well-diversified portfolio, a lot of that's going to get washed away, and you just got to kind of keep the benefit of the higher expected return. Um and obviously, the, the the geek argument is like, well, why don't you just focus on sharp ratio? Because if I just have a better sharp ratio, I, my return versus my risk is higher, I can use leverage to do even better than what you guys are doing. To which I say, yes, that's true. If you can use leverage and you don't mm -hmm. get called out on your leverage, you know, at the wrong time, which also happens a lot. So it, it's not that uh, being a sharp ratio optimizer is a bad idea or what we do is necessarily a bad idea. There's just trade-offs. And I'm just, I'm just trying to deliver something that gives you organic leverage uh, and, and geared exposure via the, either to the factors or beta um, if you have some sort of aversion to <clears throat> sorry, leverage just either mechanically or intuitively or, or what have you. So, And I think an important point that Mike and I have been on the podcast before and here with Pierre talking about advisors mm -hmm. need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And yes. one of the yep. things that they need to get comfortable with is the fact that if they stay the same with the valuations that we're seeing today, they're going to have to expect lower returns for the client's portfolios. And they're going to have to, if they do nothing, talk to their clients and say, listen, you're going to have to work harder. You have to save more. And that's totally fine. Right. But yep. if your clients are not prepared to do that, then there's a few ways in a low return environment to increase your long term expected rate of return. One of them is to use leverage. Right. And the other one is to yep. use implicit leverage, which is what you're describing here. Right? And you yeah. get the same amount of money. You're able to use products that have a 1.3 beta, sometimes more, and uh, and actually inch up closer to what the expect what the, your clients have expected historically. You're probably not going to get there fully. You still have to manage some of those expectations in terms of savings and then working longer, but it does help, right? So I think it's crucial to understand yeah. this concept. If you're going to continue to, and you got to, again, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. These are new things, higher variance. Yeah. You're going to have to explain it to your clients much more. But if you want to raise your average, this is what you got to do. It's interesting too. Yeah, I, I agree. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, it's it's easy, at least down here, like like I, people always complain about getting out of the status quo and, and being, you know, uncomfortable being uncomfortable. But Hello, have you ever been in a competitive marketplace? <laughs> like you don't get paid a lot for sitting on your ass doing nothing and like not adding value. Like if you want to earn returns either as a, in your human capital, you better start adding value and bringing uniqueness and thinking hard because eventually some young millennial or, or whatever competitive element will, will, will element will enter your competitive marketplace and be like, hmm. I'm going to go get Joe fat cat over there and steal his clients. Cause he charged him 1% to just like sit on a Vanguard fund all day or pick stocks like pot stocks. Like that guy's worthless. I'll charge 50 bips and build efficient por portfolios, you know, go buy resolve products or what, like I'll actually think hard about what I'm doing and you'll lose. So I think it's critical that you always want to be uncomfortable 
because that means you're doing something that's worth rents and, and worth, you know, economic gain potentially. I, I think um, the expected return yeah. function is also another objective function that sometimes is underestimated for certain clients. If you are not yeah. taking any distributions and in fact, you know, um, Wes's daddy big box who probably has cash flows constantly from other enterprises, it's not a bad plan to say, I would like the highest expected return that I can get reasonably from these factors. And I'm going to be shoveling money in all the way along, dollar cost averaging, and I, and I really have no intention of re, uh, removing any money. And in those circumstances, yeah. you certainly have you know, a pretty good argument that what you want is expected return. I want, I want the end point to be as high as possible. Yeah. It, well, I mean, I'll just, I'll just do my own empirical evidence. Every rich person I know, and I know a bunch of them at this point, they all get rich by doing the same thing. Owning some asset that forced them to never be able to look at it on a market, <laughs> market basis. They were stuck in the damn thing for 20 years, even though they hated it. And then all of a sudden they woke up rich because they couldn't screw it up along the way. Right. So this is like you either got like a low basis asset from your grandma or you're like, well, I don't want to pay the taxes. You got real estate, whatever it is, a business. They, it's always the same story. I don't know anyone actually who's that rich who got rich, like doing like a trading strategy and like the markets, you know, because they never can stick to it. They're always doing the next trading strategy. So something to be said about just 20 year horizon and not worrying yeah, about, don't look, you know, the day. Don't day. Wes, have you, have you, have you had any discussions or come across any discussions with the, you know, sort the sort of the Mike Green narrative where the market cap feedback yeah. loop is just going to put, you know, the, these high market cap stocks in an infinite loop of superiority and, and maybe have some, some comments yeah. on that. Cause I, I think that's gotta be a, a keen point of, of concern maybe for, yeah, for some I mean, of the value players or clients or not. I, I, so we obviously live by Vanguard here. Um, and I'm fully aware that every day they click that little, you know, trading button that says, bye, 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 bye you know, VWAP, you know, like buying all the S&P, click, click, click. And I'm also fully aware that, you know, all, all of the poor bastards who run like active mutual funds and do active trading strategies all day long, their trading desk is going sell, 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 liquidate, liquidate, liquidate. I got to give money to Vanguard so they can transfer it to buy S&P 500. Um, so it would be totally ridiculous and insane to not believe that supply and demand Matt, does it matter in financial markets? Of course it does, right? If you're selling all day long small cap value stocks and turn around and blowing it out on S&P 500 stocks, even Apple has capacity constraints and there's going to be flows driven price pressure. Obviously, that's always been the case. The, the question, and then I guess the Mike Green argument is like, well, where's the magical arbitrage capital? Well, in the old days, there was a lot of magical arbitrage capital. So if the S&P clicked the button, people got too aggressive. There's always going to be someone out there like, well, I'll short it at that price or, or hey, I'll buy it at that price. Right. The problem is, as, as everyone gets liquidated, it's just the liquidity in the arbitrage pools is obviously getting probably smaller. So you're going to probably get more and more flows driven markets, more and more kind of factor correlated driven markets, which we already see. Um and, and what's going to happen is you're going to start seeing more 
probably inefficiency in individual names. Like, like if there's a name in a, in a sector, it's going to move more with the sector than the fact that they just went bankrupt yesterday, right? Because the sector's up 10. Well, the bankrupt stock in the sector probably went up eight. But you're like, well, dude, it's bankrupt. Uh, you know, so, so there's going to be more and more of those opportunities. But just like anything in capital markets, it has a time horizon. And eventually, if you get too much slack, if there's too much opportunity, like the arbitrage capital is going to start pitching it and being like, hey, I'm starting to pick up these, these bankrupt companies that go up 8%. But if we just hold on to them, we make money. And, and eventually they'll they'll restock their capital because it'll get too much slack and it'll come all back and it'll be in equilibrium. And I'm sure that that equilibrium is further out because of the the massive passive you know outperformance and the narrative that like cheap is better, free forever. Like you know you get a, you get a. I always tell people, have you ever seen an equilibrium economics where something is free, infinite capacity, and always works better than the alternative? <laughs> has that ever worked in any in any situation in any that just defies common sense if you believe that so of course this matters i just unlike mike like like he has much more doomsdays tails on it like and it, which is fine i don't know i i'm just more a believer that like competitive markets are a little bit dynamic and will slowly adapt to this and figure it out because people love making money yeah. and it just might be a little slower this well, time. You're already seeing, still seeing the cycle. I mean, uh, the sector performance yeah. start to change or you're seeing that the sort of those, those grand macro drivers of inflation expectations and growth expectations yeah. are going to drive cash flows yeah. to certain types of assets. Yeah. Those assets, yeah. by the way, happen to be extremely cheap for some reason. And yeah, and they're getting massive cash flow. Well, money does go where it's treated best eventually. I mean, you know, <clears throat> eventually at yeah. the margin. Well, the other plus, plus you've got this you've got this new cohort of investors <clears throat> coming in, right? These, uh, you know, coming into Robinhood, into the Robinhood platform. Yeah, it's it's creating it's changing the dynamics of the market as well. Yeah, there's elements of that 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 arguably could be changing it, or maybe just fueling the the same old fire we've always had. Yeah, and, and I, like honestly, just believe the fire is all about fear and greed. Like values, the fear trade. You know, momentum's the greed trade. And I don't know when we're in a sentiment market. I don't know when we're in like a, a gravity matters market. But it just seems like that's unpredictable. But markets tend to move between those two realms. Mm -hmm. Of like, wow, like, you know, it's all sentiment, like buy the art crap or buy our momentum stuff. You know, I look at those things like the actual companies because I can't handle it from a value perspective. I'm like, this is stupid. Like, who would want to own this crap? I mean, I do because it has good momentum. As your, like, as your momentum is buying it, is like backing up. Yeah. Like, I love that you hate your own product. No, but he doesn't own it forever. <laughs> yeah, but though, he dates those stocks. He marries the value ones. <laughs> yeah, I, that's, I, that's, that's right. That's what you've worked. You've worked really hard to to simplify things, haven't you? I mean, I mean, it's not simple what you do. You know, simple investing is simple, not yeah. easy. And you've worked really hard to. Yeah. To sort of remove the emotion from from this, the the rationalizing that people do, the behavioral things yeah. that people go through um, by by investing in both or giving both of those uh, religions love, and 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 yeah. and and at the same time being indifferent. Yes. Right? So this is something that. Um, 
anyone who knows knows, right? It's like when you have a kid, like before you have a kid, you, all these people are all, you know, they're like, oh, dude, it's going to change your life. It's such a miracle. And you're like, whatever, I'm going to go drink some beers <laughs> with my buddies or whatever. And then you have a kid and you're like, holy shit, they were right. Like, it's a miracle. Like, this is unbelievable. You know, it, it's same thing like in quant investing. Like, unless you've actually been in the pits, you know, losing your hair, stressing out, and you get smoked doing stock picking, which unfortunately a lot of people are not learning this lesson because they think they're geniuses. Like, I can tell you till I'm blue in the face that, dude, just go systematic. Stop thinking about this. You have way less stress. You have way better outcomes and your life will be better. They're not going to listen to us ever. I've learned this. It's just they have to learn, unfortunately, or I've never been able to figure out how to convince people. They got to learn their own way. When you have a baby, finally, or you turn into a quant systematic, you'll know. And once you're in our once you're in our party, you'll be like, God, those poor little babies <laughs> out there picking like being all emotional, like getting, like getting all wrapped into the narratives about, you know, they're friends with the CEOs. They did the channel checks like, oh, but it's so obvious because of inflation. Like once you just let that all free and you literally have zero emotional, like I don't even care about what the market does. I don't care what my products do. I have no zero care about them. And it's liberating well, as I hell. Think, no. I, think, I think, I think you are deeply caring about the long-term results and and i'll, I'll I, I so i don't want that to be taken out of context mm -hmm. and, care, and you care, care about, about the process the and that shit happens every yeah. day like groundhog day over at alpha, alpha architect the but the the daily yes. outcomes which are totally random is where you're fully disengaged yes the noise the the worrying about it like oh my god the momentum's up 100 percent. oh my god the momentum's down 100 percent totally irrelevant because that process, I already know that's what it does. And like, that's a good example. Like, like recently everyone's like looking at momentum as you guys probably know, like it went on a ripper, it's been on a dipper. And I was like, that's interesting. That seems pretty crazy. And so I just went back to, to like the nineties and I looked at the monthly returns and I'm like, we had, we don't even know like the magnitude yeah. like of the late nineties you're talking about, right? I was, I even just looked for 95 to 99, just the monthly yeah. returns on like our momentum strategy. And I was like, man, if people are amazed by the ups and the downs right now, they got something coming, man. <laughs> well, you publish <laughs> like, an index, right? You publish an index. What I always find interesting is yeah. we also have a bunch of indices that we show and, you know, they, they kind of, they see the indices, they, they buy in. And then six months later, yeah. something well within the average happens yeah, the like, range i can't what believe that this lost as much you saw you saw the end like just yeah. go back and take a look <laughs> I, this is this should not be a surprise i know now we don't we don't get right. much of that uh i think one of the benefits of the the work that you put out and you know we're, we're the same is putting content out there and having education first which i think is a key aspect of what alpha architect is about allows yeah. you to when people don't believe you and you know you don't have to argue with them you can just point them to your content I mean, and i highly recommend i mean wes has yeah. written a bunch of books with his team he has you know they're continuously writing great uh content and doing a they're actually reviewing other people's white papers and summarizing it for the average person so they can understand quick reads accessible 
you can spend days learning. And then by the time they get to, to us or to you, they're converts, right? They're like, I cannot believe I ever felt or thought about it in any other way but this. Right. Yeah. And that's that's yeah. one of the greatest things that I think that you put that you've been able to do. You make it accessible. You create grab complexity, make it simpler and then get the emotional side. You know that you got to embrace the suck and, you know, get your marine roots in there. So anybody who's yeah, listening yeah. to this podcast needs to go in there and start reading, uh, start, you know, drinking that quant religion. Because it, I guess, you know, it's one quant talking to the other, but it is something that is going to be immensely valuable to marry both the efficiency yeah. of, of quant with the emotional detachment of it. I, I think West. it's also the, the form of education that, that Wes has taken that's so impressive, right? It's not, um, I'm going to educate you. Mm-hmm. No, no, I'm going to lay copious amounts of evidence at your feet for, for your consideration. And, and, and I'm just going to keep, you know, questioning my own beliefs, my own thoughts. How can I improve that? Where am I might, where, where might I be wrong? What's the other research saying? And it's in that type of education. I think that is the real opportunity for people to change. As, as you said earlier, Wes, it's like a person is a person until they embrace yeah. until they do the learning, yeah. whether it's losing money on, on stocks or having a child until you actually do the, the, the bathing in the information and actually so, so, um, um, yeah. dive into it, you really don't get there. And, and so, you know, I think you, you yeah. do, you guys do an amazing opportunity for that, uh, for people to just, here's the evidence you make your own mind up, you know? Yeah. And, and the, the key behavioral hack here is, you know, we're not a nonprofit, but we always talk about the biggest issue here is behavior. And what is the most powerful behavioral issue? Everyone has big ego. So if you, if someone gets endowment effect on an idea and they own it, now they can't blame you because they're blaming themselves. And everyone like me, all of us were egomaniacs. And so the, all this education we're doing this because we want you to engage in an active behavior that gives you ownership of this decision. Because then we know once you have ownership on this data and all this evidence, and it's not even our stuff, it could be anyone's stuff. Now I know that when we engage in this battle, which is really just a battle of wits, because it's one thing if, if oh, well, Mike sold me this really cool sounding thing. This stuff's not working. Mike's an idiot. He's gone. I'll go hire Rodrigo. He's a better looking, uh, smarter guy. Um, but now the problem is you're like, a better Damn. looking idiot. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, you know, now, now I go like if Mike's like, hey, Wes, you should really read this. You know, here's 10 articles saying different things. It's not always just my stuff. But I want you to really understand this and, wa- and, and read it back to me. And then I'll be like, God, like, that's really cool. That's a great idea. Like, Mike, you should read these papers. And you're like, well, I sent you those papers. And you're like, no, 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 Mike, I'm seeing these papers, man. This is really cool stuff. You should learn about this. And, and now what happens is when I buy Mike's product and it's doing its thing and it inevitably goes on a ripper, I'm like, God, I'm so smart that I hired that Mike guy. And then when it goes on a dipper, I'm like, you know, and then you say, well, Wes, remember what you told me about how great this was? Like, remember why it worked? I'm like, God, you're right. Mike, I can't fire you, dude, because because you're right. I told you that. And so now I got endowment effect. I got ego. And all we're doing is just making people, we're doing a trick on their own brain to get them to not be stupid and just stick to the program. 
And so that's what education is really all about. It's a way to get endowment effect on clients so they can make better decisions because we cannot do that for yeah. them in the end. Yeah. Really. They, get, they gotta know, they so, gotta know yeah. the strategies at their Amen. worst. If you, if you take the time yes. to know a strategy at its worst, you have, you have a chance of succeeding because it, you know, when you go through yeah. what happens at the worst point, well, you quit. That's the highest point of quitting. Yeah. You're not, you, nobody ever quits at the highest point. They always quit at the, at the terminal <laughs> point and, and they, they lock yeah. in all the risk and they forego any future yeah. returns that they could possibly yeah. make. And so that, that critical juncture is that moment of discipline where you say, no, I'm going to stick yeah. with it. In fact, I'm going to rebalance. Right. And, and, and yeah, I'm going to go yeah. into yeah. it heavier. Yeah. And so, uh, uh yeah. Now what, that's the thing. Now in effect. Wes, at what, at what point in your career did you decide, I don't give a shit whether they believe me or not? Yeah. So it was basically, so, so I, back in old, I've always been trying to get an asset manager business forever. Right. And failed many times to include a chance. This was, I started a hedge fund in 2008 and it was, it was actually, you know, looking back a genius idea that I didn't stick to. Cause I, I literally, this is like a blueprint for how to fuck it up. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, um, so launched this hedge fund in September, 2008. Like you can't even make up worse time than that. Right. I had like 3 million bucks. It was literally a systematic It's basically our quant value system, but it was long and short back in the old days. I want to be a hedge fund person. Um, so, you know, it was great. It's beautiful. Stuck to this program going into September, which you guys probably remember is like when all those things just started blowing out. Well, first month in did okay. But then my R2K short, cause I was too, I didn't have the, the courage to do individual names in that market. It got called in and I'm like, wait, the Russell 2000 can get the short called in cause of no borrow. Like that's not supposed to be possible. And I was like, well, wait a sec. So now I can't even run all my beautiful back test, long, short fact. I can't even do that. And, you know, it's outlawed. You can't even short bank stocks. And now I can't even short R2K. I was like, holy shit, that, they didn't teach me that in Chicago. <laughs> Where's that um, in the back test? I, <laughs> yeah, that was in the not in the back test. test <laughs> not in the back test. This is where I get all my alpha and my short book. And, it, you know, and of course, that didn't happen. So I was like, okay. Whatever. So we're going to have to like, and I, I can't remember. I think we started like moving to SPY. Even then, like the rebate costs were insane, but I had to do something. But then it went to like November, December, and I, we had done well because obviously we went in hedged and we didn't have exposure to the market. And, and we were just an absolute return thing. So this was great. Like the market's down like a bajillion. We're down like 20. But then all of a sudden I got this bright idea. And there's all these stocks because I used to be a penny stock value guy. And there's all these like biotech selling for less than cash and like all the same stories are like, wow, this is a unique time in the market. It's never been better. And so I literally went to my clients and I said, guys, we've got to stop this quant crap. I'm telling you, <laughs> this is the best opportunity. I did this for 10 years, made a killing buying like, you know, Ben Graham cigar butts um, the whole nine yards. So I literally transitioned the fund back to being a penny stock, deep value stock picker, right? And long only, this was in December, 2008. So anyways, doing all this for like the next two years. And then of course I ended up having a situation where I'm like, I don't even remember. Looking back, it's so stupid. I was like 60% in one stock. 
It was like some penny stock thing. I like knew the CEO, like flew down to Florida, like kicked the tires. The guy was like an old army cat. Anyways, long story short, it was a fraud that like I got totally bamboozled. The guy was a, it was just a fraud thing, man. Um, and, and, and just by dumb luck, so the fraud thing, like obviously blew up like 80%, like the fund got destroyed, even though I had a lot of gains, you know, basically equal and like, uh, or it was less than R2K. But then I had another one that, that also had like some crazy lucky like buyout. So it like tripled. So on net, after doing all of this brain damage, I was so stressed out. I literally equaled probably R2K plus like three times the volatility with like 50x the heartburn. And of course, when you reback test, like, hey, what if we just did the long only quant value <laughs> leg? You like double their performance. Yeah. And so that was like my kumbaya moment where I was like, man, because remember, I was in this fraud and now telling all my peeps, like it was my money, like my grandma had some capital. I'm like, guys, like I were down, like, I don't even remember, like 50% or something stupid, like versus the benchmark. And it, and I went to that pain moment of just feeling like a total idiot. And then I just got dumb luck, lucky that it all came raging back. So I was able to pay him out money good. But that, that whole experience just made me think, you know what? I'm out. And then what made it even worse, I was like, I am all in quant. I'm never doing this shit. It's ridiculous. But I had one hanger. It was this thing called PRXI. It was like the old Titanic asset trade because I had done so much research on this thing, man. I was like, you know what? And Jack will tell you the story. My partner, Jack Vogel. I was like, cause I was still, I was still a stock pitch, stock pick guy, mm-hmm. you know, just, it was in my, in my DNA, even though I went quant, I was still in there. I was like, Jack, dude, I'm telling you, this thing's going to double the Titanic. It's a liquidate classic liquidation. You know, I've seen the bids out in the UK auction house. Like I was inside scoop. These things are worth three times. You know, I talked to CEO, they're in liquidation phase. It's like, it's stupid. It's selling for a dollar. It's worth $3 in liquidation. And of course, and he did it, you know, like my PhD student, I was still all in, I had like a big chunk. And of course that trade also went south <laughs> for all the normal reasons that like stupid stock picking goes south. You're hundred percent confident and then you miss something. And, and then that was just my last, that was probably like 2012 or something. I have not picked a stock or done anything non-systematic ever since been eight years now it's like i was a drug addict man and i'm out like i, I it's like a, i'm not touching alcohol every day i recover stock like, picker yeah i'm so done it's been eight years of being clean <laughs> and i'm i'm like i might get drawn back you know if Come i get on. really rich you and, you, buy, and you decided you to buy some of that GameStop at the end you wanted to buy <laughs> oh, some of that bitcoin dude, I, I buy a lot of shorting <laughs> shorting all of that i want a short game stop like Honestly, the last active decision I made was, which was a dumb luck one, is I as I swapped out of our trend product and went all in value last March, just because it was like fifty percent intramonth drawdown. I was like, you know what, this is stupid, um, and that was my last. But that one I was careful on because I, I like I still attribute it to hundred percent dumb luck because I know if my little monkey brain thinks that skill. I might, you know, I might get that drug again. So, but I, I'm off that drug. Those, those receptors. I'm just a liberated man, dude. I'm like, I'm like a gospel. Like, just don't be a stock picker. It's, it'll kill you. 
Um, I love it. Right. So do you guys want to switch gears anyway, a little bit to the um, ETF structuring learnings that, that uh, Wes has had for a few minutes to, before we, can, where we wrap or what do you, what, what, how do you guys want to go? Yeah, I think, I think Wes, you should maybe, you know, talk about um, your, your ETF platform. The, uh, sure. you know, um, yeah, yeah, you got it. So, you know, through all this brain damage of running a vertically integrated ETF firm, like out of my garage with no budget, we've learned a lot over the past seven, eight years now. And, you know, now we're actually, I guess, professionals technically, even though I'm wearing a sweatshirt, but you know, whatever. We love, uh, we love that about you. <laughs> and um, so now we have that, this that's platform. Not, that's not COVID we're, either, people. That's what he wore pre-COVID. Yeah, yeah, it's not COVID. <laughs> it's pre-COVID, um, post-COVID. That's, isn't that Alpha Architect swag? Is that a AA swag? It is Alpha Architect swag. So I guess it counts for maybe marketing or something. Um, but so, so we have this platform where we've kind of dialed in and we know where all the bodies are buried because we spent a lot of time figuring out every little piece of this ETF, you know, back office, you know, middle front uh, back office on the ETF thing. And then we've had this platform. We've, all, we've always been like the low cost operator for our own funds. But as you guys are probably aware, like, well, once you build one software stack, well, guess what? You know, we could put our five and never add another one for another 50 years or if we just went for it, we could open this platform up and allow other people to basically take advantage of our infrastructure cost. And so that's what we've been doing um, the last few years. And we, we haven't really been marketing it at all um, just because we wanted to make sure, you know, we could operationalize for a third party effectively. And, and we've done that and that we still don't market at all, but somehow everyone now knows about like our platform. And so now all I do in probably those two or three calls that we heard as, as we're on this call, they were probably ETF architect leads where people will call us up and say, oh my God, we heard you guys are good at doing this. Like, can you help me launch an ETF? Um, and then my job is to basically say, no, you shouldn't launch an ETF. Like, do you really wanna join the most competitive, high CapEx, low fee business on the planet earth? Are you insane? <laughs> That's my question number one. And if they, they're like, no, no, I get it. it. That's just really just a scare tactic to, to make sure, like, are you ready for what you're about to get into? And if they're ready to get into it, all right, great. Check the box, number one. And then, we, then we'll just sit down with these entrepreneurs where if they're serious about getting this business, you know, our, our platform will give them an ability to access this market very efficiently. And then we're not going to bring distribution. Like, you got to do that. You got to be the passion but we're going to be able to help you because we have sat in that seat for a long time and we got a lot of scars on our back. So and we're just passionate about helping entrepreneurs out because, as you guys know, we've all been there. And so anytime you can help someone that's, you know, wants to fulfill their dream, it's it's kind of like you feel like you feel like you're having an impact besides just, you know, maybe make a little bit of money here or there. So, you know, it's a fun business and um, I think we're good at it. And yeah, if any of your listeners or what have you are interested in launching an ETF and they can pass that first question like, are you insane? Do you really want to do this? You know, feel free to reach out. And we'll uh, have a conversation. Um, so that's fantastic. It's all good. So you're based out of the U.S. West. You have a range yeah. of momentum and value and a combination of them. And then you also yeah. um, sub-advise here in Canada for Smart B, right? So for those Canadian yeah. investors and advisors that want to take a look at that, uh, these concepts in action, you know, it's available yep. in the border or across the border. 
for anybody yep. that wants you to feel the pain. <laughs> get that leverage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Get that, you want to leverage that awesome uh, diversification, that painful diversification. Yeah, if you want concentration that you get then, even when you don't want it. Yeah. You got it. Build efficient portfolios. You can do it up in Canada or you can do it yeah. down here. We're worldwide. North <laughs> We're worldwide in North America. <laughs> <laughs> and Al, depending on where you put the globe, you know, it looks like we're worldwide. Al, so alphaarchitect.com. And then what do you, you, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, just Al, Alpha Architect. Okay. And anywhere, anywhere else oh. anyone should well, reach he's, out to He's you? got that picture of the one suit he wore that one time. Yes. That's true. Yeah. When we got the fancy pictures yeah. I put on my suit, I was like, ah, here we go again. I um, saw that in your, uh, yeah, so in your, in your, in your uh, white paper blog, you, there's a photo of you wearing a, a, a tan colored suit. And the caption is, is uh, Wes in a, in a, <laughs> in a fancy suit. So. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I should probably read some of my blogs. Like, like we have blogs now that are like 11, 12 years old. And I go back to some of the old ones. I'm like, oh, God, I need to rewrite <laughs> Don't that. Do it. Don't do it. <laughs> this is a compliance well, well, that nightmare. One, that one was from, that was from, I think that was from a week or two ago. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. All right. Yeah, I like it. That's good then. If you read an old one, let me know if it says something silly. I'll, I'll go. Oh, I thought it was it. hilarious. <laughs> one, one last thing, too. I'd like you to do a plug for the March for the Fallen. That's a place yeah. where we have been able yeah. to get together in the past. We weren't able to do it this last year, but we did it together apart. Um, but maybe, maybe yeah. let everyone know what that is. And you're passionate about that, too. So we look forward to making that trek in uh, in September, I guess, to Pennsylvania, the pilgrimage. Yeah, yeah. It's cool. This year, you know, God willing, it's uh, it's a live event. We'll see. Depends on what yeah. COVID does, but I think it's looking good. But yeah, it'll be late late September. And as you guys know, we, we go uh, go up to the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania, and it's I call it a direct consumer charity. It's not like meant to raise money. Like the charity itself is representing out on this twenty eight mile ruck march um, where there's Gold Star families out there. There's actually a lot of Gold Star members actually in our financial community, unfortunately. And it's really just opportunity to represent and let them know that we, you know, we still remember their sacrifice, and you know, we we want them to know that we're part of their team and part of their community, and we'll, we'll still remember their you know fallen heroes, basically. So yeah. it's a great opportunity to hang out with good-looking guys like Mike and Rodrigo, and ugly guys like Drink me beer and, and eat pizza. And my wife, female bear, twenty-nine so, miles. You know, there, there's nice women uh, representation out there too. It's not just only maniac uh, gorillas. Um, that's a great event. Come on it's out. It's a bunch of nerds take going everyone. out and pretending that they're active. It's amazing. <laughs> and once you, once everybody yeah, yeah. starts reading <laughs> the quant, fintwit space and getting to know all the personalities, they'll have, they'll be starstruck yeah. once they get down to the March of the Fallen. So, um, that's true. Definitely um, see if you can, make, how many hours drive from Toronto, Mike, when we, I think when it was 11. We, we did our drive. How many hours? I think it's it? 11. 11 hours down. Yeah, and if you, if you speed like Mike did once, and I mentioned that I was going to the March for the Fallen, speed. you can get out of that speed. You, speed you know, <laughs> you're you're helping out. You're helping out the uh, for a good cause. So you can speed all. Yeah, you can get down, you can there, get down there. Yeah, if people fly down to Philly, we we always run like convoys out just because it's efficient to come into Philly. Um, it's a yeah. I mean, we'll we'll do whatever it takes, man, uh, to get you out there to represent. That's. It's not meant to be onerous on like a cost basis yeah. or any of that. We take care of logistics. You, you even get a tour uh, of the, the Alpha Architects headquarters. 
That's true. Yeah. yeah. You check out Global World Headquarters, <laughs> which I'm sitting in right now. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, Wes, it's been awesome. It's always yeah, a pleasure got, to see you. I Go got ahead. one last. I got one yeah, last question. Something, some, something sure. new that I want to start doing in uh, in raise your average. Yeah. Would you rather? It's a would you rather question. All right, and then follow oh, followed wow. by a why. Would you rather spend a week in the past or a week in the future, and why? Man, week in the past or a week in the future? I would, honestly, I, I kind of, I, I have a saying, my personal life's called welcome to the adventure. And the problem is if I knew the future, it wouldn't be an adventure. So I, I would probably spend a week in the past because I already been there. Mm. I could relive, you know, what I already know, but it, I, I feel like I'd be cheating and it, it wouldn't be welcome to the adventure. It'd be like, welcome to what you already know you're about to get into and you've already experienced, which wouldn't be very interesting to me. <laughs> so I'm definitely a, a spend a week in the past guy, but, uh, my wife would be a week in the future. She gets anxiety. Okay. <laughs> Diversification. <laughs> Diversification. Yeah. Amazing. There might be a gender bias. Yeah. There, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we were kind yeah. of like the value and momentum in our relationship. Um, Love it. Same with this question, I imagine. But all good. That's a great one. I never <laughs> yeah, heard that agreed. question. That made me think. Uh, <laughs> good stuff. Uh, Wes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I can't thank you. And I mean, we can't thank you enough for all of your time and your wisdom and for, uh, you know, the fight that you're, uh, that you're fighting a good fight for, you know, simplifying investing, uh, because it certainly isn't easy. And, and, uh, I think your work, uh, proves that out, but I have to say, we're probably all on the same page when, when I say that, that, uh, we love the idea that you're not trying to convince anyone of what that what you're doing is the right way to go you're just doing it and you're telling people about it and you're educating them and that's kind of fits in really nicely with uh with raise your average of what we're trying to do and what mike and rodrigo have been doing all along as well which is which is basically talking about what they do and how they do it and how it works and how it can work for you but you know um i asked you that question because i, I wondered at what point you know did you have the epiphany that that you're not going to try to convince anyone of anything anymore. You're just, you're just going to mm -hmm. do it. You're going to talk about it and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to show as opposed to, yeah. as opposed to uh, trying to uh, sell anyone on anything. And, and that alpha architect products are not for sale. They're for buying. Yes, you got it. And, and just to be clear, like I, I'm just happy to be part of this community. Like I feel this is not like, this is just, we're one, you know, one person in the community out there that, that's trying to have this movement to empower investors education. And, you know, we all benefit. Like I read, you know, Adam Butler's like 500 page, like white papers yeah. where I'm like, God, that guy's smart, man. <laughs> like I keep, I keep learning. I got a PhD in finance from yes, Chicago yes. and I just learned something. Um, so it's every, you know, everyone's involved and it, we just try to, you know, we bring our shovel to the, to the party and dig a little hole with everyone else. And, uh, you know, the hope I think is just, I'm just proud to be part of the community and it's great that you guys got a podcast that helps, you know, introduce your world, your users and, uh, listeners to different people that are in our community and focus on education. So appreciate it. Well, we're proud to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Wes. You got it guys. Good stuff. Awesome.